0: Hi, it's Andrew Clavin. Welcome to this week's interview with Dr. Carrie Gress, the author of a new book called The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us, which is a really interesting title and a really interesting subject. It's actually a historical view of how we got from the start of feminism in the Romantic era uh, to where we are today. Really interesting. It starts, as I have talked before, about how Uh, You know, in in that revolutionary moment, that moment after the Industrial Revolution had settled in and as the French Revolution was about to transform Europe, the role of women came up for discussion and everything was on the table, including free love uh, in England that ultimately resulted in a much more... I think, productive time, the Victorian era. Some people hated it. Some people, like me, think it was one of the greatest moments in European history. Uh, I want to talk to Carrie Gress about how we got from there to today. She is a uh, fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a great group. And again, the book is called The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Carrie, thank you for coming on.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having
0: me. First of all, great title, a great subtitle. The, 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 idea, the idea that smashing the patriarchy has destroyed us is not that popular with uh, some feminists. Um, but but let's, let's take it the way you take it. You, you, this is an historical book, as a historical survey. And you begin with, with Mary Wollstonecraft, which is where I think this does begin. Are the seeds of the feminism we have today there at the very beginning?
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, some of them are. With with Mary Wollstonecraft, I think um, you know as we can discuss further. Her son-in-law, whom she obviously never met, Percy Shelley, did more to leave his stamp on feminism than she did. But she she started the discussion uh, certainly with her book, The Vindication of the Rights of Woman, and that that really is where we have this idea. You know, that, as you know well, of, of Thomas Paine and trying to move towards this more egalitarian. Movement And so that's where she, how she's writing about women is, you know, she's very critical of any kind of hierarchy. She's critical of monarchy. She's critical of um, anything related to, to the church um, because she wants to see this sort of collapse down into egalitarianism. And so I think that that's really the first movement is, is you know, how she kicks it off. And then, um, you know, her son-in-law sort of takes the football and runs with it um, much further down the field than she ever imagined. But um, that, that's really where it started
0: that's that's a really interesting thought I mean I, I think the Shelley was a great, great poet, but one of the truly terrible people (laughs) of literature. And and I've I've written about how how Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein, is really about the removal of women from the process of creating life. And I I think that it may have been a reaction to living with this guy who she she adored him. She She almost worshipped the ground he walked on. How did he become, I mean, he was not a very successful writer in his time. How did he become such a guide to where feminism was going?
1: yeah I think that's a great question because um part of it is really answered by certainly his fascination with um, Mary Wollstonecraft, who again died before he ever met her but he knew of her reputation and of course he also really appreciated and and loved the work of his her his father-in-law William Godwin, who was very much an anarchist and you know was very much against marriage and you know that was how he was known um so Shelley, I think takes a lot of these ideas and you know, he does, he makes what he calls the, the women's revolution. And, um, you know, he's also very involved in the occult. And that was one of the pieces that he kind of added to the movement that we see just like a cycle kind of moving through the movement throughout the, the centuries. Um, so that was a piece, that's what he adds to Mary Wollstonecraft's egalitarianism, um, which ultimately, I, I argue, becomes this idea of smashing the patriarchy. Um, and then, of course, he adds onto it the contribution from his, 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 um, father-in-law, this free love idea, um, which, of course, he was living in spades. And, um, you know, this is why he's such an awful man and had, uh, you know, so many dead people and dead children and just this, you know, awful trail of misery that followed his life. Um, but those are the really the three things that I, I think he, he, how he left his stamp on feminism. Um, but he also was really interested in, you know, you probably know better than I do in the works of Milton and sort of rewriting the Genesis story. Uh, which is another one of those, you know, themes that we see through throughout feminism, kind of coming back over and over again, is this idea of how do we, how do we sort of um, reframe Eve so that she and Adam didn't really fall? Um, but what he does is he takes the work of Milton and makes it so that Eve is really the heroine. She's, you know, she gets this special kind of knowledge from the serpent, and she ends up becoming a heroine. And that is one of those ideas that that comes through. Um, through the movement, with certainly with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, which um, we can get to. So, in that way, and then I think the final way that he really, um, and, and perhaps maybe the most creative way that he impresses himself upon the movement is with this creation of this character named um, Sithna, who, you know, while Mary Shelley is writing about Frankenstein and his creature, um, Percy is writing about this woman, Sithna, who becomes sort of the first independent woman because she doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have children and i think that was what really captured the imagination of so many women of that era and that's um certainly we see you know 60 70 years later in the, the suffrage movement too is this notion of a woman being truly independent of, of family which was very you know incredibly revolutionary at that time
0: so let, let's talk about this idea of the occult for a minute because one of the things that shelley in in dealing with paradise lost uh, he was one of the first people to say that the devil was the hero of Paradise Lost, which is now the the first thing that every uh, student writes, first paper every student writes if they still teach Milton at all. Uh, it, how do you mean that occultism has become uh, integrated into feminism? What what do you mean by that?
1: Um, I think that's a great question, and I I think it, you know it's one of those things. I I try not to focus so much on this in the book because it just I didn't want the book to sort of become this esoteric discussion of things that we can't see touch feel think about you know in in very tangible ways and i didn't want it to be just go into crazy land but um you know percy shelley was obviously you know had sympathies for the occult we know that he was thrown out of school for writing about atheism and and but that's a big jump to the occult um but he also was fascinated by um darkness and creation he spent the night in a church um in a a tomb actually trying to summon the devil um, so this is something that was was just kind of part of his persona, part of his personality. I mean, he was very much of this era of, you know, pushing taboos and pushing against everything that sort of smacked of traditionalism. And so the occult was, I, I think, a, a big source of fascination for him. Um, and we see this, you know, again, in um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton back in, in this or later on with the suffrage movement, because she's actually very involved in seances and using mediums and this was actually just sort of part of this um you know part of the whole feminist movement was very much connected with this this notion of spiritualism and then of, of free love as well so uh, it's it's but the first time that we see them all together is, is certainly with shelley and the, you know just the whole era that's i think fascinated in these these taboo eras you have got Desaad writing at that time as well and um shelley was just very much part of his personality to push any kind of boundary that he could and you know what could be more boundary pushing than dabbling
0: in, you know, Satanism. <laughs> yeah, what else? Um, when when you look at this period, there, there's a sense that women were oppressed. Were women before feminism oppressed? Is that a fair assessment of their state in Western culture?
1: You know, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, obviously, there, we know that there are bad men and they're bad women and people will do bad things and mistreat each, each other. I think there's also, uh, you know, what, what seems to be a lot of the reaction is just the struggles that, that women had largely because of, of their fertility and, and bearing children. And I think that that's what motivated a lot of these feminists was to ask the question of, certainly we see in Wallstonecraft and, and moving forward, but how do we help women become more like men? Um, and she sort of ruminates on this this a lot. Um, this idea of how do we help women move in that direction? And, you know, if you start looking at the feminist movement through that lens of that question, I think it sort of clarifies a lot of things and helps us understand even what's happened in second wave feminism, uh, you know, all the more, Um, what's happening certainly with the trans movement, that this, this has been a goal to really separate a woman from her fertility, from her children, from her husband, and make this idealized independent woman. And then um, but it, at the expense of all that's feminine and the vulnerability certainly that comes with, with childbearing and whatnot. So I, I think that's the main goal. You know, it wasn't a question of how do we help women as women? It was a question of how do we, we change them um, to be more like men and sort of putting the masculine on a pedestal. So, uh, you know, I think if we're going to talk about oppression, we have to, there's so many other tentacles to get into in terms of socioeconomic realities of you know wars that are going on. You have something as basic as laundry that, you know, women had to do and people were just trying to do things to, to survive as families. So I think the, the question of oppression is um, you know, it's just a little bit too vague to really articulate and say, you know, as a matter of fact, everyone's oppressed. You know, I don't I don't think we can make it that simple. I think there's a lot of um, competing historical realities that are going on that that make it very difficult to make that claim. But I think they see a problem with, you know, women have, have have difficult lives. How do we make them simpler? But they just answer it in the wrong way.
0: As you might know, we're all fans of our friends at Genucel. Don't just take my word for it. Ella from Rockford says, I have both age and acne spots, and this stuff is actually fading both of them. This serum is worth every penny. Ella is raving about the famous dark spot corrector from GenuCell, a must-have after months of record heat and humidity. Sunspots, brown spots, discoloration, even red inflamed patches all disappear in front of your very eyes. And here's the GenuCell amazing guarantee. You will see results on day one or your money back. So take advantage of GenuCell's most popular package, which now includes the dark spot corrector plus the classic GenuCell bags and puffiness treatment and immediate effects. All at about 70% off so you can try the best skincare in the world for yourself completely risk-free. It's simple. Go to genuselcom slash and start looking years, even decades younger tomorrow. Say goodbye to darkened liver spots, bags, and puffiness under the eyes and crow's feet at GenuCell.com slash That's GenuCell.com slash Talking to Dr. Carrie Gress, author of The End of Woman How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. And I want to get to that idea as quickly as possible. So I'm going to skip through a, a little history here and get to, let's say, around the, the 60s in America. And one of the things that has always struck me about, say, Betty Friedan uh, as an example is how dramatic and angry the language of early feminism was. I mean, I grew up in that period. Uh, the idea of the woman as homemaker was kind of respected. I mean, I, I'm sure that there, as you say, there were bad men, there were bad women. But the idea of the mother was very, uh, was held higher than I think it is today. And and it, they certainly, in my neighborhood, were the sort of linchpin of the community. They were the reason there was a community, because mothers were doing what they were doing. Betty Friedan said this this is like a concentration camp this is like being a concert, which always strike whenever i hear that it always strikes me i i could understand saying well i'm dissatisfied with this i'm but the actual like power of that the fact that it caught on the fact that people were interested in it what what do you think was behind that why was that such a powerful idea
1: yeah i when i read that i just i couldn't believe she got away with being able to publish that you know i've been i <laughs> <Yes. into> actual <laughs> concentration camps and they look nothing like these suburban homes that Betty Friedan was complaining about. So, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty remarkable. I think what was really going on is Betty Friedan was very much a, a communist. She had really absorbed a lot of the Marxist ideas and she wanted to get women to start thinking like Marxists, but she didn't want to come out and say, think like Marxists. So she ended up being incredibly clever. And, you know, if you read the Feminine Mystique, it's really interesting because she has this background in psychology And you, you know, you, you have this impression that she's just sort of this, you know, housewife dissatisfied, that's kind of where she's coming from. But if you start really looking at what she's doing, um, she actually has, you know, the whole focus is to try to get women out of the home. And, you know, we know from one of her biographers that she has had this quote in one of her journals about the angles wrote about how, you know, women will only be free if they get outside the home and start doing productive work. Um, so Ferdinand was very much a mouthpiece of the, the communist movement and was really focused on this idea of how do we get women out of the home? But she, you know, her, her friend, uh, Simone de Beauvoir said, well, if you tell, you know, if we tell women to leave the home they, or give them the option, they, they'll never leave. Um, and so, you know, Ferdinand comes along and says, well, let me try, let me try my hand at this. And so she uses all kinds of just incredible psychological tactics to, to get women on board for this. And, um, you know it's very it's masterful really it's 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 genius and it's it's just incredible how successful she was um using this but she appeals to this sense that women have of being of being victims of being you know, in this comfortable concentration camp that's one way that she does it but she also appeals to i think our sense of missing out which um you know can be very strong in women this fear of missing out and um so that's another aspect in in which you know a- another way she tries to make us think like marxists um, so yeah, it's incredible. She sold 3 million copies of that book in the first few years of its publication. And it just you know, swept through the culture like wildfire. So yeah, it's it's amazing how she did it. And um, But we know the reasons why she did it. And again, it was to focus on how do we get women to be doing productive work? Because the Marxists at that point had already decided that being at home with children was not productive. And so they had to get us out of the home. And this was really her effective way to do it.
0: It also establishes, I mean, motherhood and homemaking establish a different set of values uh, to the male value, male more materialist values. And if Marxism is nothing else, it's materialist. And I think it actually is at, at odds with motherhood and homemaking. It actually, they, those are not two things that can survive uh, in, in tandem. I, you know, this, this idea, I mean, I, I keep coming back to this idea that smashing the patriarchy has destroyed us. For, first of all, can you define the patriarchy? <laughs> because I'm not sure. I may I may have missed it. Uh, yeah.
1: No, and that's right. That's the Achilles heel of the book. I'm sorry, I did not put a succinct definition of the patriarchy in there. I think part partially because it just feels so ubiquitous. But um, yeah, the more that I, I'm seeing of it, that everybody kind of it's sort of this empty word that people sort of fill up with whatever they want. Um, I'm noticing, but um, the patriarch is is goes back to this wallstonecraft idea of getting rid of any kind of hierarchy and getting rid of what are typically considered the, the masculine. Um, traits characteristics gifts you know in, in in military or church or other you know um, leadership kinds of roles um so sort of reducing everything down to a much more egalitarian notion um so anyway that's i think you know how i'm i'm using the word smashing the patriarchy but um so that's been a um certainly a piece that that's we use so readily that i think you know most people don't realize all of the other pieces that go along with it and but or maybe they do i don't know but i guess the the real idea is is devaluing men and trying to put women in their in their place and i think that's that's part of the aspect of what they're, they're working with is with this idea of smashing the patriarchy and getting rid of men doing the roles that they've done so well throughout history
0: so how does smashing the patriarchy destroy women why is that the end of woman
1: well, I think because if you have women who are fundamentally envious of men. I mean, you have to remember as you know well that Marxism set up men and women against one another. Men are automatically the oppressors, women are automatically the victims. And so if you have all these women who are trying to get rid of men, you know, you're never going to build a culture if it's built on resentment or envy or um, class warfare. And that that's really what we're seeing is this deep, deep wedge that has been placed between men and women just fundamentally, you know, from the very start, this is what the ideology tells us. And so you can't really get out of that. And as a result, you're not going to have happy families. You're not going to have, you know, flourishing communities. You're not going to build anything because it's all built on kind of resentment and, um, jealousy and you know the, the desire for that which we can't have especially when it's built on things that are not even intrinsic to our human nature
0: <laughs> well well that's okay is, i mean I, I can't help but note it. I, the, the one thing about envy uh, you know and materialism is it it makes sense I, I get envy and materialism somebody has something i want it i want more i don't want to miss out staying at home with children can make you miss out on a lot of things but I, I also can't help but notice that young women especially are, are miserable. I, I, when I speak in colleges, I frequently start by saying, it seems to me young women are miserable. If I'm wrong, please step up and tell me. And not only has no one ever stepped up to say that, they all sort of say, you don't even know the half of how miserable we are. And yet, when I ask people, well, what, are, what is the, the value system that Stands up to Marxism. That stands up to envy. What what kind of value system are we trying to create? I, I, people start to get very scared. They don't want to say, uh, "Let's go back to the old days." They don't want to say, "Yes, men and women have different places in the world." Uh, what what do you say? What it, what would you tell? It, you, you've you've taken this historical perspective, which is great, and you go through the ideas and how they unfold. What are you offering instead?
1: Well, I think you know the 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 first thing is we have to recognize how much we have been indoctrinated as women, and this is one of the things I think this book does is it helps men have a little bit more compassion towards women, and you know when we are being awful or narcissistic or whatever, because they I don't think any of us really realizes how much the culture has worked against us as women. Um, They have not only defined themselves as you know if you look at sort of the the typical feminist woman, she's she looks very happy, she's very attractive, you know, this is sort of the the um the model that we're supposed to be emulating. But they have also been really clever because they have been able to articulate what they think the opposition looks like. So you know, every time we have an issue about abortion outcome the women in the red robes and the red bonnets and this, you know, they're trying to imply that that if you are not these kinds of women, then you are absolutely part of a fertility cult. And you know, this is bad. And this, you know, um so you're either part of a fertility cult or you are um you know, a doormat, or you're just not very smart. Like that's, I mean, it's, it's genius, again, where they have, they've defined both sides of the argument in their own terms. What we don't have, and this is really where I think um, conservatives have so much catching up to do is we haven't really flooded the market in any way of with images of what actually healthy ordered women look like. We don't have any kind of moral imagination of how that looks or what a, a normal woman looks like. Um, And I I think this is a huge failing on our part because we've spent so much time, you know, rightfully so on legislation and, you know, different ways to, to end abortion and whatnot. But we have, you know, completely missed the cultural side, which is actually how and where most women absorb their content, whether it's on social media, it's in Hollywood, it's, you know, daytime TV, what, you know, fashion magazines all of those areas are really where women's ideas are are largely formed about what they think. I mean this is why Barbie was such is such a um a remarkable tool to see. Like this is pure propaganda. Like there's the, the complete there's not a single man in it that is necessary or good. Um and uh, you know order comes back when women are in charge and the men are like put in their corner kind of thing. Um but it's got amazing you know f- Shine on it. It's got a lot of pink. It's got a lot of nostalgia. It's got some tender moments, and so our, you know our reason is not engaged, but all of these other areas of the emotions are engaged. So I, I think this is the the biggest problem. Is that um, you know certainly a Judeo Christian vision is is hugely important because that's where we understand that there's male and female. This is also what the French Revolution was trying to get rid of. It was trying to get rid of any reliance upon the Ten Commandments, I and mean, this is very fundamental. They were trying to get rid of that. And, and rely completely on this just notion of pure reason, not realizing that, you know, what seems reason, reasonable in the 1790s might not seem very reasonable in, you know, 2023. Um, so that, that's the big problem is this slide that's happened. Um, so I, I think it's just very basic things like 10 commandments, but I think we also have to do a, a much better job of filling in those gaps with real women who are attractive and compelling and people want to be like. Um, also because our message is, is better than what the left is, is putting forward too. So I I think that it's, it's not really as hard as we think. It's just that all the categories have been sort of stacked against us in terms of the public opinion, um, you know, about what is good and what is bad. And so people just don't know how to really articulate it anymore.
0: You know they're they're bringing out a, a a live version of the old movie of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and this made a lot of it's made a lot of, it gotten a lot of publicity because the star of the movie has said, well, there's not going to be any of this men coming to rescue me, I, which which I find really um, sad because <laughs> I think that the if you don't have men who actually want to defend you and rescue you, you're going to have all kinds of other men that are not going to be all that pleasant, uh, and they're still going to have just as much power as they did before. So, is that I mean, is that a story that can be told to a modern woman? Uh, you know, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. These these ideas that yeah, you know, there is a, a, a defense and rescue role that you want men to have uh, because the other role that they would take is is, is kind of ugly. I, I guess what I'm trying to say to you is is yeah, Barbie tells this story well. Is there a story that we're not telling that can be told? Uh, uh, in, a, in the modern era.
1: Yeah, I think that there's, you know, we have a lot of opportunities to, to, of, of storytelling. I, you know, I personally don't have any interest in seeing Snow White and <laughs> that iteration. I mean, that's just yeah. going to be work-related if I go see it. It's not going to be because I want to. But um, yeah, I think, you know, there seems to be kind of a new fascination, certainly with Jane Austen film or um, novels and, and recreating them. I think there's, an, you know, we have a, this amazing we have amazing resources in novels and in storytelling and we're just not really doing it well. I, I think that's, the, you know, part of the problem is that everything is, is being woked over and, and, you know, made to fit with the, the narrative. And so it's just not that, that compelling, but um, and that, and that's one of the reasons why Barbie also has been so um, I think been so successful is because of the fact that it just almost, it's supposed to be fun. Um, but we don't have a lot of fun movies anymore because they just become so busy indoctrinating us into to something so yeah i think some uh, you know there, there's always going to be fodder in so, something like an, an austin novel but i think that there's so much room for something more creative and new and fresh or there's there's something to be said from remaking old older films or older stories like snow, snow white um for a contemporary audience but still leaving it intact at the way the story was meant to be told instead of you know t- tossing Tossing the you know, Prince Charming out, or uh, you know, re- revisiting it, making it some sort of independent woman, uh, you know, battle crime.
0: So I, I have I have two last questions, but they're kind of the key questions, especially as I as I listen to you. The, the first is is about sex. Um, you know, as as you point out with Shelley, he was all for free love, and he made extensive use of that, leaving bodies in his way, actual corpses in his way. And yet now I, I hear so many women uh, who are miserable, uh, who have what they now call a body count, which is how many men they've slept with. And of course, it's an amazing number because who would say no? I mean, there's nobody to say no. If the w- woman stops saying no, nobody says no. Um, and so I guess what I'm asking is, is what what's your prescription to a modern woman going out into the world who says, well, you know everybody else is sleeping around. A guy can find sex elsewhere. They don't really want uh, virginal women. they don't really even want uh, responsible women. what What do you say to them to, to start to turn this around, to start to turn their own misery around?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think that's that's part of the question is they they are miserable and you have to identify why they're miserable. I mean women are just not made to be promiscuous and this the emotional baggage that it creates is just incredible. I mean, there's, and certainly the biological baggage is, is incredible as well. Um, so I think we need to just help women understand that this is not who they were made to be. Um, and it, it's it's awfully hard, especially if you are in these circles where everybody that you know is, is doing this. And I think that that's really the, the, the big thing is to sort of figure out maybe these are not the right people in my life. Maybe there are other people. And, and it can be incredibly isolating and very challenging. Um, but I think it, just even understanding the ways in which we've been indoctrinated and the ways in which, uh, you know, even something like free love creates a kind of dependency that, that we have, um, you know, we end up being more dependent on, upon the government. We end up more broken. You know, even back in the you know 70s and 80s, you had magazines, editors conspiring? How do we have more broken women? Because we sell more products, we sell um, more magazines, you know, all of these kinds of things are are, have been working against us. So, um, you know, maybe in certain respect, that's obviously why I've written the book so that people have a sense that this is a dead end reality, this is not going to lead them to a place of happiness. But I think that begs the question, well, where do they go? Well, I think it's also uh, you know, finding people, whether it's wise women that you respect, or you know, finding other people at some place like church or in different communities or in colleges or you know whatnot, there people are out there. Um, it's just a matter of sort of finding them, getting out of this cycle where you think that you know the hookup culture is really the way that that people live their lives because. Um, that that's certainly not going to lead to the kind of happiness that women want. And, you know, maybe this is the, the, the real piece is there's so many women, so many women that I've met that say, you know, I did everything that I was supposed to do that the world told me that I was supposed to do it. The feminist movement, you know, pointed me in all these directions. And, you know, then I meet them, they're 50, 60, 70 years old. And they're saying, well, this is not the life that I wanted. Um, I thought I would have a family. I thought I would have, it wouldn't just be me. I thought, you know, there would be more in my life than what I've got at this point. Um, so I, I think that's the, really the key is women need to start thinking about, well, what, is, what do I want my life to look like when I'm older? Um, instead of just focusing on, you know, the the challenges of now and start sort of moving in that direction, planning ahead and sort of getting out of this um, this narrative um, that, that we've been told is the, really the only way to think in the culture these days.
0: This leads me to my last question. I have to ask because we started with uh, the satanic element. It really is a satanic element in some of this. And and to tell people that there is great joy in uh, uh in missing out in order to raise children and make homes, that there is great joy in missing out on uh for men on a promiscuous life and, and to have a home and to have a wife and, and family. Uh, how, how much of this is dependent on faith, on having faith in God? Uh, is, is, there, is there a way forward without that? Because I sometimes, I mean, God has been such a uh, joy in my life and such a central part of it. But I get tired of banging the drum because people sort of roll their eyes and say, oh. But it, it, it just seems there's, no other, it seems there's no other road forward. Uh, am I wrong?
1: You know, I think you're right. Because I think that, the, you know, as I talk about in the book, I have a whole chapter on this, that, that really what has happened is we've made man the idol. Um, this desire to change our human nature, to make all this kind of flexibility and reinvention and whatnot, um, that, that's really the idealization of ourselves and our body and our wills. And so the only way to really get an ordered sense of this is, of course, it, like I said, going back to something as basic as the Ten Commandments, but I think you know it can go much deeper than that. It really has so much to do in, in believing that there is a God who knows us and loves us and um, wants to be a part of ordering our lives and bringing us happy and joy. Um, happiness and joy. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's very it would be incredibly difficult to navigate all of these things without any kind of um, theistic touchstone. and you know, just even the the traditions and the the kinds of um, wisdom that we get from those who are believers and have, you know, through the whole judeo-Christian tradition offers so much. Um, but I, I think that's also, you know, when we're in a culture that really, focuses on fun and personal satisfaction, those are those are very difficult things to give up um, when you've been told that those are the primary things that you should be after. And, you know, those are not primarily God, you know, the values that are, come to us from the tradition. Um, things like perseverance and, um, it, you know, even suffering that these kinds of things, you know, it's very hard to make this case. Without, again, having real examples of how these people look and how people who are enduring this, what their family life looks like, what even the end of their lives look like. And so I think this is why we really need to get back to storytelling and to the culture and to start showing people, you know, how much different our lives look when we believe in God versus when we, you know, believe in ourselves.
0: Yeah. Dr. Carrie Gress, the author of a new book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. I think it's really important to see these things in historical perspective because people are born into it and they don't know where it came from. They think it's just the the way it is. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. It's really nice talking to you.
1: Oh, my pleasure. It's great meeting you.
0: Really interesting conversation and really interesting how all this fits together. As I keep saying, these ideas did not just fall out of the sky. They were given to you. They can be taken back. They can be fixed. They can be corrected. Really interesting to talk to her. And we will have more interesting talk on Friday with The Andrew Claven Show. Do not miss it.